0: Well, today is your lucky day. Why? (laughs) Well, every day is your lucky day, I suppose. Anyway, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Tuesday, 16th of May, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Season show podcast. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. It's my pleasure to be your host on this Special podcast on the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town. It's been long known as the gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut was founded on July 18, 1640. And you know what? Since its very humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has emerged to be one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that that we like to call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you're here to stay, just passing passing through, if you're brand new, whatever the case may be, we, you know, we welcome you with open arms, and I have a little surprise for you. You know what that is? Ready? You're now a part of our history. <laughs> I'll bet you didn't know. Well, now you do. So I send you my congratulations. I'm really glad that you could join us for today's show. Greenwich Town for All season show podcast is made possible by my good friends at Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, I'll tell you, I am so delighted uh, to be with you today, and I think that we've got a great show for you. So, without any further delay, why don't we get started? Coming up on today's show... The month of May is traditionally the time the nation observes Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. On today's show, you'll hear about a lecture by the essayist and former Greenwich resident, Hamilton Wright Maybe, at the Second Congregational Church in 1914 on the people of Japan. Under the Carnegie Peace Foundation, he went as an exchange professor to Japan in the winter of 1912 to 1913. It's our pleasure to welcome New York-based Eastern Neurologic Services as the supporting sponsor of this segment. On Talk of the Town, I'll share an encore of a conversation I had with Historic District Commission Chair Stephen L. Bishop, Greenwich Preservation Trust is honoring him with its 2023 Preservation Leadership Award. On May 25th, the public is invited to attend at the Greenwich Water Club in Koskab. You can learn more at GreenwichPreservationTrust.com. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, our visit will take us to West Knoll, the only home in Greenwich designed by the renowned architectural firm of McKim, Mead & White. It was built in 1887 and subsequently demolished in 1906 and replaced. The story was made possible by Matt Bernard, author of Victorian Summer, The Historic Houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut. Judge Frederick Hubbard comes back to us in the form of a penned letter challenging public assertions about the name Steamboat Road pertaining to the section that includes today's Greenwich Avenue. I'll have more about that. On Greenwich life as it is and was, Lucian Edwards reflected on the life of Edward Mead and his house off today's East Putnam Avenue. You can see it. At the intersection of Indian Field Road on the north side, uh, and it's quite an exquisite home, although I'm a little bit biased being one of the Meade descendants in saying that. As we continue to mark the 125th anniversary of the establishment, establishment of the Greenwich Police Department, I'll share news of burglaries, arrests, crimes committed, and recorded from throughout Greenwich history on crimes and misdemeanors. Now, what else? Well, you'll hear a special message that was published for Memorial Day in 1908. The Greenwich graphic reprinted a New York Sun piece that challenged published falsehoods about the wedding held at the Second Congregational Church on April 30th, 1908, between renowned architect Thomas Hastings and Helen Benedict, the daughter of Commodore and Mrs. E.C. Benedict. Um, We featured news of that, by the way, on the January 24th, 23. 2023 show. Speaking of the Benedicts in their estate Indian Harbor, you'll hear about a fire in one of the outbuildings. My friends, there's lots to see, to do, and to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. You've come to the right place to learn about that history of one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. We'll have this and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203-869-6895 or go online to learn more at SiteDesignAssociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound, looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American diplomatic corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203-869-8632, write to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets, with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at two oh three four eight five seven five nine five. Victorian Summer. The Historic Houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut, by Matt Bernard, is an incredible compilation of Belhaven's rich history from the Gilded Age. Featuring beautiful photos and ephemera, the book is the culmination of decades of work and research, taking its readers to the development of Belhaven Park during America's Gilded Age. On today's show, we are going to visit the Belhaven residence known as West Knoll. Its principal owner was William H. Brigham. It was built in 1887. The address is 79 Harbor Drive. The architect was the firm of McKim, Mead & White. It was demolished in 1906, and the house was replaced in that same year. The architect of that house is unknown. McKim, Mead & White was considered the greatest architecture firm of the Gilded Age. Among the firm's many masterpiece masterworks were the old Madison Square Garden and the old Penn Station, two of New York's greatest glories, both tragically demolished. Extant masterpieces include the Morgan Library, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Washington Square Arch, the Boston Public Library, and the shingle-style Newport Casino. The firm's two greatest designers were Charles Fullen McKim, who lived from 1847 to 1909, and Stanford White, who lived from 1853 to 1906, both social butterflies, while the reserved William Rutherford Mead, who lived from 1846 to 1928, was the self-described rudder of the office. McKim, Mead, and White did more than any other firm to develop the American shingle style. McKim and White were on the... Or In the invention of it, both worked for Henry Hobson Richardson in the 1870s, when Richardson designed the prototypical shingle-style house for William Watts Sherman in Newport. When McKim, Mead, and White joined forces in 1879, they immediately set to work on the Newport Casino perhaps the most famous example of the style and the building that is responsible for the Shingle style's current revival. In 1885, Stanford White built the 44-room Namkeg in in Stockbridge, Massachusetts for the lawyer and diplomat Joseph Choate. Namkeg remains among the most admired residential projects designed by the firm, a house to which young architects still make frequent pilgrimages. Two years later, the firm built its only recorded house from the ground up in Greenwich at Belhaven Park, a classic shingle-style cottage located on a two-acre parcel at 79 Harbor Drive that perched overlooking Long Island Sound. It was done for the businessman named William H. Brigham, about whom little is known beyond his status as a pillar of Brooklyn Heights society. Brigham's west knoll on a spectacular sighted hillock facing westward, floating over Byram Harbor, was one of McKim, Mead, and White's more modest shingle-style residences. Elegant in its simplicity, the clapboarded first story ran up against the shingled second story, with diamond patterns worked in. The recessed balconies with classical pillars, the oval keystone windows on the side gables, cab- and the slight overhangs breaking up the wall planes. These data, details were woven from many styles into a seamless and apparently casual composition. According to the Scientific American Builders Edition of 1890, the house was painted light yellow with white trim and green stained blinds. No pictures of the interior survive. One entered the house from the piazza rather than many piazzas of the day, but culminating in a lovely gazebo into a spacious great hall. To the left were the dining room in front and kitchen in the rear, and to the right were the parlor and billiard room. In the Victorian age, the billiard room was a kind of male retreat, the original man cave, where smoking, drinking, and bawdier tale- <laughs> tale-telling went on, together with actual billiard playing. Upstairs were five large bedrooms, the master bedroom giving on to a wide balcony overlooking Byram Harbor. All told, West Knoll cost Brigman about $11,000 to design and build. It is impossible to say whether McKim or White designed West Knoll. Its understatedness suggests McKim. Or whether one of the many talented architects uh, in their employment did the work. Unfortunately, the house lasted only about two decades. A new owner demolished West Knoll in 1906 and built a handsome Georgian Revival mansion, architect unknown in its place. Today, the 1906 house exists with the accumulation of a dozen owners' extensive additions and renovations over the past 100 years. The original porcouture was removed at one point, and the entrance relocated from the eastern side of the house to a symmetrically centered door covered by a new entry porch on the front elevation. The one design element carried over into the Georgian replacement was the gazebo, which today has a second deck that serves as a sun porch off the second floor master bedroom. The old West Knoll carriage house still exists, the only structure in Greenwich designed originally by McKim, Mead, and White. Until fairly recently, a McKim, Mead, and White house stood quite similarly to West Knoll, stood on the bluffs at Montauk Tick Hall, as it's known, burned down in 1997, but was meticulously reconstructed by its owners, Dick Cavett, and the late Carrie Nye. Victorian Summer, The Historic Houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Bernard is available for borrowing purposes through the Greenwich Library system. You can go to your favorite or nearest branch of the Greenwich Library or you can go online to greenwichlibrary.org. Well, my friends, why not consider purchasing a copy of this wonderful book about Belhaven? It's a great book, and it's one I strongly recommend. You can purchase a copy, visit GreenwichHistory.org. You can also call 203-869-6899, or if you wish, visit your favorite book vendor. best kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted Best Coffee Shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Ableist's and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining, inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open Day Daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays. Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own. A popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends, the word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. On March 8th, the Greenwich Historical Society welcomed visitors to its current exhibition, Sports More Than Just a Game, presenting an inclusive and insightful history of athletics, sports culture, and celebrated athletes in Greenwich and surrounding communities. The exhibition, supported in part by grants from Connecticut Humanities and First Republic Bank, tells a fuller history of local athletes, teams and competitions with artifacts and memorabilia in view from or on view rather from museum and private collections now i have some good news for you the art of croquet lecture and demonstration with lee kennedy um, of the greenwich croquet club will be on thursday may eighteenth, 5 to 6 30 p.m that sounds like a fun thing to go to The next event um, uh, with the uh, programs of sports more than just a game um, is Discover Greenwich Scavenger Hunt, and that would be the sports edition. Put that on your calendars for Sunday, June 18th, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And uh, let's see, after that, movie night on the Great Lawn. That sounds like a lot of fun. A League of Their Own, that's going to be on Thursday, July 27, from 6 to 9 p.m. And that's on the campus of the Greenwich Historical Society at 47 Strickland Road in (laughs) Cosgob. Well, it's time for Greenwich life as it is and was. This was a column that appeared in the Greenwich News and Graphic um, a century ago. This particular column today was written by Lucian Edwards, um, and he focuses initially, anyway, in the article on one of my favorite of the um, of the Mead family mansions and homes that were uh, built around town. Uh, this one, I'm sure that you have seen at least once in your lifetime. If you have driven on uh, East Putnam Avenue, that would be the Edward Mead House. This is the one that is at the intersection of Indian Field Road on the north side of the, um, of the road. Um, it was built in 1832, and um, it really is, I think, one of the most exquisite of uh, our family mansions. Um, the title of the column uh, from a century ago, actually June eighth, nineteen twenty-three, is Edward Mead and his beautiful home and other prominent men, um, and the story goes as follows. In the in the article a few weeks ago, relative to the strong men, mentally and physically, living in Greenwich almost the time the Greenwich graphic was first issued, the statement was made that there, that there may have been others. One in mind was Edward Mead. He passed away a few years previous to, to that time, but for the greater part of his life was contemporaneous with them. He was a man so universally respected and of such admirable qualities of character that some mention should be made of his life in the community. He lived in what may be called the Ancestral Estate, a large farm located on the Boston Post Road, the land being situated on both sides of that now greatly traveled thoroughfare in the vicinity of what is now Indian Field Road, in the fine white frame two-story and a half house on the north side of the road, having been a conspicuous landmark for years. The landmark the farm rather, has been in the possession of this branch of the Mead family for a longer period of time than any other farm has been owned by any one family in the town of Greenwich. It is safe to say members of Edward Mead's family still owning most of the farm and living in the attractive house. Until a few years ago, there was a number of farms that had been owned by um, a family in each instance, since pre-revolutionary days, but they have now uh, become the costliest state for which Greenwich is noted. Mr. Meade's son, Daniel Merritt Meade, was the first captain of the Company I, 10th Connecticut Regiment. Benjamin Wright, father of Wilbur S. Wright, was made lieutenant when the company was organized and when Daniel Merritt Meade was promoted to major of the regiment soon after the Greenwich Company had gone to the front, Benjamin Wright was made captain. Robert M. Wilcox, vice president and secretary of the Putnam Trust Company, is a grandson of Edward Meade. Previous to 1832, the house in which the uh, Meade family lived was situated on the opposite side of the street from the present residence. In 1832, the present house on the north side was built, and the completed and, that, and then completed, was considered in many ways one of the finest homes, houses rather, in Greenwich. Stagecoaches were making regular trips between New York and Boston, Then, and the attention to the passengers um, in them almost always called to the house, as one worthy of a special note on the stagecoach uh, wrote. But the chief feature of interest was the front door entrance, That is probably the most beautiful one architecturally of any house in the town of Greenwich. There are those much more costly, but none of more artistic appearance. The entrance became so noted that the attention of Wallace Nutting, the artist whose pictures in colors had been sold in large numbers in all parts of the country, Um, was attracted uh, to it, and one of his most admired pictures is that of the front door entrance with two young ladies of Greenwich, dressed in colonial style, ascending the front steps, title of the picture being, quote, A Trip to the Squires, unquote. I want to cut in here uh, because uh, that did uh, obviously attract my attention, and that particular uh, picture by uh, Wallace Nutting did actually exist. It still does. Um, you're going to have to go a bit far away if you'd like to see it. It is, it is in the collections of the Getty Museum in California. Um, I've seen it. I've posted, posted it at Greenwich Town for, all seasons blogspot.com for today's show. And really, I think that it is an absolutely exquisite picture. And so I would invite you to go and, um, and to see it there. Let's see, what else? Oh, well, let's go back to, um, to the to the story, shall we? All right, um, let's see. Other objects that are of interest at the front of the house are the box shrubs, or boxwoods as we would call them today. There are three of them, uh, gigantic specimens, um, each side of the front steps, having one, and they are probably 92 years old, the same number of years as the house. The one in the garden just west of the front lawn is 114 years old, having been planted in 1809. How about that? Another old resident who uh, should receive special mention um, is the quote-unquote sage of New Lebanon, as he was called, Milo Mead, whose memory is revered by the older residents of East Portchester District, today's Byram, of course, for which section he was always ready to spend his money and time to improve in every way possible. And although he did not succeed in having the name changed to New Lebanon, much to his regret, that did not deter him from working for the interest of that section. He gave away his land and money freely for the public improvements. He was a fine old man, and it is certainly a great pleasure to talk with him. He lived in the little story-and-a-half frame house on a knoll at Byram Shore, facing Long Island Sound, from which there was an unmolested view of Long Island and The Sound. The house looked somewhat incongruous, situated near the fine residences of Byram Shore, but certainly added a picturesqueness to the scenery thereabouts that it would not otherwise have had. Mr. Mead's letch string was always out, and he welcomed stranger as well as friend to his house, and seemed to delight to talk about New Lebanon and the days that had passed during his long life. He had amassed a considerable fortune that he had acquired by the sale of a large part of his farmland for Byram Shore residences. He always lived the simple life, however, and was noted for his generosity and kindness of heart, as well as his interest in New Lebanon. Then there was Shadrach M. Brush. What a fine old gentleman he was, too, having deserved reputation for his ever disposition, yet it was not always that way, according to a statement made by him in the presence of the writer. He had an ungovernable temper, won a boy and young man, and only narrowly escaped injuring a companion by losing it. That taught him a lesson, and ever after that time he controlled his temper and was known to be a man of the gentlest ways. Mr. Brush was a public-spirited man. Besides the fine farm in Stanwich, that is still owned and occupied by members of his family, Mr. Brush possessed large possessions of real estate located in the borough, that would be downtown Greenwich, much of which he improved. He was engaged in retail business in the borough, again the downtown area, for many uh, for a number of years, retiring after he'd become advanced in years, his sons succeeding him. His bor- his home in the borough was sold not long ago to the Knights of Columbus for their headquarters which makes a central and desirable location for this prosperous organization so well known for activities in the late war. <laughs> You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander. Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M J O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, in recent podcasts, I have not mentioned much about Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard, uh, but we're going to change that today. <laughs> he was a lawyer, writer, gifted storyteller. His remarkable life spanned the end of the 19th century and the first third of the 20th century in Greenwich, Connecticut. He would write under the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale. Don't ask me where that came from, but he came up with it when writing about what he called "crackerbell stuff through his column, The Judge's Corner. Now, I will call to your attention that there is a book in the Greenwich Library System called Greenwich History, the Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson, um, who put that together many years ago. Today, I have something that does not come from that book, but it is nevertheless by Judge Hubbard. It is in the form of a letter that was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic, um, January 27, 1922. And the headline on this is, never, quote, Steamboat Road, unquote. Judge Hubbard insists it was, quote, Road to Piping Point, unquote. I've heard that too. So let me just get on with what um, uh, the illustrious Judge Hubbard um, had to say about this. Again, in the form of a letter to the editor, news and graphic. Several weeks ago, your historical writer took exception to my statement previously previously made that Greenwich Avenue was formerly called the Road to Piping, Piping Point, and that it was not called the Steamboat Road north of the New Haven Railroad. To his support, he brings John M. Williams, who says he came to Greenwich in 1866, that he often used to read and or use the road, and that he never heard it called by any name than the Steamboat Road all the way up to the Post Road. It is sometimes the case that verbal evidence and hearsay is accepted in such matters in lieu of record evidence, but the latter class of evidence should be accepted rather than the former. My authority for the statement with reference to the name of the road in early days grew out of a very interesting interview had with the late Colonel Thomas A. Meade, October 20th, 1883. And by the way, Colonel Thomas A. Meade's house was located on the site of what is now the main branch of the Greenwich Library. It was moved, by the way, in, um, what was it, 1929, um, to Grove Lane, and it now sits at 8 Grove Lane, um, and you can drive by. Please don't go in and knock on the door. It's a private residence. Anyway, back to the story. Uh, He was born um, in 1799 and died in 1892, Colonel Meade told some of some incidents within his own knowledge, uh, and some were given as hearsay from his father and his grandfather. They included these interesting facts. When Colonel Meade was a boy, Henry Meade was an innkeeper who had entertained in such style as, the times permitted, General Putnam, Lafayette, and other revolutionary notables. The inn stood at the corner now occupied by the Presbyterian Church. It was purchased by that society in 1886 when the inn was torn down. Times were hard in Greenwich, as in all the colonies, after the close of the war, and Henry Meade struggled along for a few years and then moved to New York City with his family, and as far as is known, no one of them ever returned. He sold the land south of the main country road, now Putnam Avenue, to Reverend Dr. Isaac Lewis for 155 pounds, six shillings, and 10 pence New York money. This included what was subsequently known as the Dr. Theodore L. Mason Farm, it being cut up and disposed of by his heirs about 35 e- or 30 years ago. The tract is described in the Greenwich Land Records, volume 13, at page 67, as follows Quote, one certain tract or piece of land lying and being in said Greenwich bounded southerly by my own land, westerly by the road leading to pi- Piping Point, so called, northerly in part by land belonging to Isaac Holmes, Jr., late of Greenwich, deceased, and in part by land of Captain John Hobby, and east by the land of said John Hobby, containing ten acres, one rood, and seventeen rods. Unquote. This was the same Captain John Hobby who kept an inn where Mr. Fennessy now lives, and over whose inn as the stopping place of General Putnam in February 1777. There has been some controversy. But the record shows the name of the so-called quote-unquote road, now Greenwich Avenue, as it further reveals the fact that the entire center of the borough once sold for less than $1,000. Now, as to the knowledge of Mr. Williams, he says he came to Greenwich in 1866, that he frequently went over the road, and that he never heard it called by any name but the Steamboat Road all the way to the Post Road. If Mr. Williams will read Major Meade's History of Greenwich, published in 1857, nine years before his arrival, he will find in the appendix of that volume no less than nine instances of where the business people who advertised in the book called the road Greenwich Avenue, and in no case is it referred to as the Steamboat Road. If in 1857 it was called Greenwich Avenue, is it it probable that nine years later, when Mr. Williams first knew it, the name had been changed to the Steamboat Road? Records do not bear th- out this assertion, and within my own knowledge, since 1859, it was never called the Steamboat Road, and that was written by Frederick A. Hubbard. And again, that appeared in the Greenwich News and Graphic on January 27th, 1922. Now, getting back to uh, Judge Hubbard's book, of course, that I mentioned, um, the author of that book, Frank Nicholson, said of Judge Hubbard, one feels after reading him that here was Greenwich's Renaissance man. He was a traveler, sportsman, epicure, observer of the contemporary scene, arborist, botanist, critic, humorist, naturalist, and oracle. Uh, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of things here. A profiler of people, a recorder of events, a describer of places, even a militant protester. That would have been fun to see. And a sound recorder of various aspects of Greenwich history. That book I mentioned, Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson, is available for borrowing from the Greenwich Library system. Visit GreenwichLibrary.org. But again, I do want to mention that not all of Judge Hubbard's writings are in that volume. Um, Maybe some of you have recalled that I recently featured uh, a uh, an excerpt from his book Other Days in Greenwich. That is available online, by the way, if you don't want to go to um, the library um, in person. Uh, It's an exquisite uh, history, and I strongly recommend it. The name Hamilton Wright Maybe, spelled M-A-B-I-E, probably doesn't ring a bell with many of you. But um, about a century uh, ago, he was actually a very, very well-known national lecturer. He would go on what we still call today the lecture circuit, um, speaking at various venues and locations on a number of topics. Um, Because this is uh, Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, um, I thought that I would feature this Um, And um, this was in 1914, in May of that uh, year to be exact. Um, Hamilton Wright Maybe, the famous writer and lecturer on the staff of the the Outlook, um, I believe that was a magazine that uh, was published at the time, delivered a most interesting lecture on the subject of, quote unquote, Our Japanese Neighbors. Uh, at the Memorial Chapel of the Second Congregational Church on Tuesday night to a most select and interested group of Greenwich people. Dr. Mayby was formerly a resident of Greenwich, which made his hearers doubly interested in him and his message. In his lecture, he dealt especially with the traits of character of the Japanese people, which made them the great nation they are their inborn perpetual cheerfulness, their fanatical patriotism, bravery, and chivalry as evidenced peculiarly in the Russian-Japanese War, their skill as a people in the arts and crafts, their love of nature and beauty, their stoicism in all sorts of duty, their extreme courtesy, and their almost unbelievable honesty, which Dr. May be illustrated by saying that if a Japanese should be out for a walk and should find a roll of money by the roadside, he would pick it up, carefully dust it uh, with his handkerchief, put it on the stone wall beside the road with a heavy stone on it, so that it could not be blown about by the winds, and then continue on his way, rather un-American, but particularly Japanese. Yes, you, that's something to think about. Especially interesting was his description of the sounds and sights which make Japan, Japan, and no other country in the world. The quote-unquote peddlers of sleep, the blind massage men who go through the streets at night waiting to be called in by anyone who is uh, at all wakeful to woo sleep for them, the seller of cooked macaroni who at an Instant notice comes in off the streets and serves you his favorite dish at whatever time of the day or night you may feel hungry. I think that would probably be an early version of street food, I suppose. I don't know. The native boys who meet you at the station's yelling lunches, <laughs> or selling lunches rather, the runners clearing the streets before your carriage, the temple chimes ringing for prayer, the storyteller Uh, with his crowds at the street corners and many other bits um, of strictly Japanese life. The proceeds of the lecture went to the campfire girls of the church under whose auspices the lecture was given. And again, that was from a published article in the Greenwich News back in May of 1914. Well, businesses of all types uh, throughout the ages have been looking for ways to promote themselves um, and to do so in ways that are memorable, and I have one for you from all the way back in ninety or from rather, 1908. Um, I, I, rather, I was rather entertained by this, and I thought that you might be too. The headline on this uh, is Turtles, that would be, of course, the uh, Turtles spelled it. Last week, the Greenwich Clothing Company adopted a novel means of advertising that attracted the attention of many hundreds of people to the store on Greenwich Avenue. And again, my friends, this is back in 1908. Um, And the story continues. Let's see. There were displayed in the window eight turtles on the back of each of which was painted a letter. The letters, if properly arranged, would spell the words... Quote unquote, one price. All right. The reptiles were mixed in together, and it was announced that a prize of $5 would be given to the person who first saw them arranged in such order that they spelled, quote unquote, one price. Many people watched the window, but it was not until Thursday evening of last week that they got the desired arrangement. E.R. Finn spelled F-I-N-M, was the first to note this, and he went into the store and claimed the $5 note which was at once given to him. The proprietors of the Greenwich Clothing Store are up-to-date and enterprising. They not only carry an exceptionally good line of goods, but they take every very clever ways of telling the public about them. Uh, they, they well deserve the remarkable success with which they have... They have uh, they have met since they established their store in town and again could you imagine doing that today maybe one of our businesses could try that um, could you imagine getting a group of uh, turtles together and spelling out maybe a word or something putting it in the front window of the um, of the store and then uh, offering a prize when the turtles would arrange themselves in uh, in such way that would be rather entertaining and I think there would probably um, be rather time consuming <laughs> to say the least. If they do it, well, or somebody does, well, good luck to you. And uh, if you do decide to do this, let us know. We'll advertise it here. Back in June, 1908, there was a horrendous accident that happened to a workman here in Greenwich. The headline on this was uh, in the papers and it said roasted in midair. Um, my goodness. On Monday at about noon, and that would be on June 5th, uh, this was published in 1908, on Monday at about noon, James Boylan of Brooklyn, an employee of the Westinghouse Church Care Company, while working on the New York, New Haven, and I guess it would be Hartford Railroad, overhead wires near the freight house was severely burned, and the doctors say that he will probably recover. He lies in a critical condition at the Greenwich General Hospital. Boylan was unscrewing a nut when his wrench came in contact with a live wire and a short circuit was caused. There was a blinding flash and Boylan was knocked unconscious, but was caught in the wires so that he remained swinging in midair. His clothing was ignited and burned rapidly. Out of reach of the many spectators, the man remained hanging to the wire, insensible and slowly roasting to death. Two comrades finally succeeded in getting the man to the ground and extinguishing the flames, but nearly every stitch of clothing had been burned from his body. Doctors Smith and J.A. Clark responded quickly to a hurry call and gave first aid to the injured man. He was removed as soon as possible to the general hospital. He was burned about the arms, back, and face. He remained unconscious for a considerable time. The doctors expect him to recover, but it will be a long time before the terrible burns heal. Well, my friends, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show in which we pause to observe the continuing 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. Um, many people think that uh, Greenwich is this wonderful paradise where everything goes wonderfully well, there's no crime or anything, um, to say the least, it's not the case, it never has been, and it probably never will be, at least crime-wise, uh, what can you do? Anyway, this literally dates from a century ago. Um, I, when I read this, I, I kind of, uh, felt a bit of frustration on the part of, um, of Judge James Mead, who was the uh, judge in the uh, local court here, um, and uh, it um, it centers around <laughs> drunken chauffeurs. Um, you no, know, not good to have. Anyway, the next. Quote, unquote, the next offender who is brought before me for operating a car while under the influence of liquor I am going to send to jail, unquote, said Judge James R. Meade of the borough, that would be the downtown court, last Saturday morning when, jo- when John Apinski, a taxi driver of Stamford, was arraigned in this charge as well as reckless driving. It was the third case during the week where Judge Meade imposed fines for such offense. Under the statutes, the court has an alternative for the first violation of the law, but is compelled to send a man to jail for a second offense. Apinsky pleaded guilty to both reckless driving and operating a car while under the influence of liquor. According to Officer Bryson, who made the arrest, a car was operated by Apinsky hit a motor truck, which was standing at Diamond Hill, Koskab, having its rear lamp lighted. The accident occurred about 8.45 Friday evening. When the officer reached the scene of the accident and began to seek information, William Bucket, who was a passenger in a Penske's car, began to coax and plead with the officer to let his companion and himself go on their way. The officer refused and then Buck. <laughs> Her bucket became boisterous and said some unkind things about the officer, while the latter had his back turned to him. I wonder what those words were. They were not featured here, so they were probably of a um, uh, uh, obscene nature, maybe, who knows? He was arrested as well as Apinsky, charged with intoxication and breach of peace. His condition, however, was not as bad as that of Apinsky. Prosecutor White, in his remarks to the court, said that it was men of Bucket's type who always endeavored to get somewhere by denouncing an officer, and they usually accomplished their purpose by getting somewhere in court. Judge Meade expressed himself as being pleased that Greenwich had officers who always did their duty. He imposed a fine of one hundred dollars and costs upon Apinsky, and Bucket drew a fine of twenty-five dollars for breach of peace and seven dollars and costs for intoxication. The court directing that both men stand committed until they paid such fines. Under the law, Apinsky's driver's license will be revoked for a year. And again, that was published. In the Greenwich News and Graphic, a century ago on May 18th, 1923. Well, I will tell you, this has to be one of the earliest instances of fact-checking regarding fake news that I have seen, and maybe you as well. We hear those words very often in the present um, day and age of the early 21st century. But guess what? I have a story for you from 1900. That's just otherwise, and of all things, that this would be fact-checking, nothing political here. But it was fiction and fact, uh, as the headline reads, as to the costs of the Hastings Benedict wedding of that year, and this concerns a wedding uh, between uh, a daughter of uh, Commodore E. C. Benedict and his wife, and also the renowned architect Thomas Hastings. They were married at the. Second Congregational Church in 1900. It was a very, very fancy uh, wedding of um, that particular period. And um, and <laughs> apparently, the publishers of the news, gra- or the Greenwich Graphic, decided to do some fact-checking. The headline is, Fiction and Fact The to the Cost of the Hastings-Benedict Wedding. <laughs> I, I have to admit I was a bit amused by what I'm about to read to you and it goes as follows. One result of the absurd reports printed in some of the New York papers of the extravagant expenditure at the Hastings Benedict wedding at Greenwich, Connecticut on April 30th, again 1900, is that enormous, an enormous number of letters have been received by Mr. E.C. Benedict's family from light-witted people of all, of various sorts, One old lady asks for money to enable her to take a journey to meet her four sisters whom she, quote, has not seen in 60 years, unquote. Another woman demands $4,000 to pay off a mortgage on her home and insists that if the $4,000 cannot be sent, at once $5 be sent anyway. (laughs) There are many more letters, and some are not so harmless. And... Uh, and if I may, I'd like to cut in here. Um, they have this in two columns. Um, one is misstatement followed by fact, um, and this concerns the wedding that took place at the Second Congregational Church between a daughter of um, of the. Benedict's and of um, Thomas Hastings, the renowned architect. By the way, Mr. Hastings um, was the architect, um, along with um, Carrere, who uh, designed the New York Public Library in, um, uh, in Midtown Manhattan, not far from Grand Central Terminal. And also, Hastings was the designer of the uh, Benedict Estate uh, Indian Harbor, which, of course, um, is still in existence um, uh, near the pier at um, the end of Steamboat Road. You walk down there, you look over to the left or the east side, you can see it there, Um, although it has been altered um, from its uh, earliest uh, time. Uh, Some of this, I'm I'm not going to read the the whole thing here, but I thought this was rather um, interesting. Misstatement. The wedding cost (laughs) $1,500,000. Fact. It didn't cost more than $10,000. Misstatement. Mr. Benedict presented the the bride with a check for $1 million. Fact. No check whatsoever was given. Bride and groom have independent means. (laughs) Misstatement. A special wedding march was written for the occasion by Victor Bayer. Fact. No music was written for the occasion familiar music was played. Misstatement. The oldest tapestries in the world were bought for the occasion. Fact, no tapestries were bought, some were borrowed. (laughs) How about that? Misstatement, the bride's trouser, or or, 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 what is, I don't know that word, Uh, trouser, well, uh, cost $250,000. Fact, it probably didn't cost $2,500 and was bought here except. Uh, for one Paris gown, okay? Misstatement. The floral decorations at the church cost $100,000. In fact, except some uh, sunlikes sent from the South, they came from Mr. Benedict's garden. The only other cost was um, a dozen men's work for half a day. <laughs> Misstatement. Mr. Benedict followed the English custom and distributed $1,000 In gifts to servants. Fact, he did not. Let's see. um, Another uh, misstatement. At the house, the full Damrosch Orchestra played. And the fact, Mr. Damrosch, who was a guest, was the only member of the orchestra present. (laughs) Misstatement. Mr. Benedict put the steam yacht Oneida at the disposal of his daughter for a cruise to the Mediterranean at a cost of $300,000. Fact, the Oneida cruise with the bride and groom from Greenwich to the foot of East 26th Street. <laughs> the couple went to Europe on the, let's see, um, 15 or 20 cruises to the Mediterranean for um, uh, for the cost might have been of uh, $300,000. That's okay. Um, and so I'm just going to, um, to end it there. <laughs> But um, again, it was a rather entertaining example of how even back um, 123 uh, years ago uh, that um, people were fact-checking. How about that? Who knows what they will say um, uh, 123 years from now or even next week. (laughs) It can be rather confusing to uh, to read the news uh, these days. What can I say? As I'm prone to asserting to people, we live in an incredibly imperfect world. And so it goes. Well, in the earliest years of the 20th century, there was a tea room located in Putnam Cottage. Maybe you didn't know that. Um, I um, I wasn't really all that familiar with that, but um, it was there. Um, and there is an article that appeared in 1908 uh, that uh, features the fact that that uh, tea room moved to... 47 Lafayette Place, the house that um, it existed in, um, is no longer there. In fact, that, that place is now the site of the Greenwich Lodge condominiums uh, that are very prominent right near Greenwich Hospital. The name of the, uh, of the establishment uh, that moved from the Putnam Cottage uh, to this new location was called, of all things, uh, the, the Squirrel Inn. Uh, Could you imagine going for, well, we're going to go to the Squirrel Inn today? Well, you know, maybe. I I don't know. I, I could imagine a name like that in the early years of the 21st century that we're in now. I don't know if it would go. But anyway, this article goes as follows. The Putnam Cottage Tea Room has been moved from the Putnam Cottage to 47 Lafayette Place, the former Warburton Homestead, where the tea room, antique furniture, sale rooms, etc., will be conducted, as before, by Miss M. E. Tuckett and Mrs. M. A. Sharkley under the name of The Squirrel Inn. Quote unquote. The Squirrel Inn, as a tea room and hostelry, represents obvious advantages over Putnam Cottage. It is much larger and roomier, and is situated off the main road, thus escaping the dust and noise of passing, um, yet it is much, I would assume, passing traffic, yet it is much handier uh, to the village. The place has extensive grounds and stands well away from other buildings. One of the features of the inn will be its private dinner dinner parties. These may be served in the large old-fashioned dining room, the pretty quaintly furnished tea room, or upon the broad shady verandas which are shut off from the sun's rays by trees and awnings, and from the street by screens, yet which are always open to the cool breezes blowing from the north. The house is furnished with the same artistic taste and discriminating knowledge of things antique, as was shown by Mrs. Sharkley in furnishing and decorating the Putnam Cottage, a task which she herself executed with a skill which drew praise from all quarters and which did much to establish the reputation which the cottage has among lovers of the historic all over the country. The cuisine is in is in charge of Miss Tuckett, whose dainty dishes, appetizing prettily served dinners and delicious cakes and sweetmeats, Prove that, after all, cookery is a high art. Okay, yes, I would agree with that. Orders for bread, cakes, pies, ice cream, etc. will be taken and catering for parties, dinners, weddings, etc. will be done. Mrs. Sharkey has an exceptionally large and rare stock of antiques which she has gathered from many parts of the country. Some of these are of considerable historical value. There are also for sale many beautiful reproductions of famous pieces. As heretofore, Mrs. Sharkey will take charge of furnishing and refurnishing, decorating, and redecorating houses in the colonial and other periods. And that, my friends, appeared in the Greenwich News, dated May 29th, 1908. Mm-hmm. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander. Landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. This story dates from 1914, the month of May to be precise, and this is about a fire. That was at Colonel E.C. Benedict's estate, Indian Harbor. Of course, you can go down uh, Steamboat Road and you go all the way to the, uh, the very end where it empties out or stands out rather from... Um, uh, wait, am I going to do this again? The headline on this is Colonel Benedict fought fire. Fireman saves his building and the former Oneida. This, of course, concerns the estate of Commodore E.C. Benedict, uh, known as Indian Harbor. You can still see that place uh, from the pier at the end of uh, Steamboat Road. If you walk down there and look over toward the left or toward the east, um, you can still see the, uh, the buildings there. And again, this, this dates from May first, 1914 in the Greenwich News. The first fire which has occurred on Commodore E.C. Benedict's estate, Indian Harbor, was that on Wednesday noon it resulted in the greater part of the borough, that would be the downtown area, fire apparatus being called to Indian Harbor, where the firemen arrived in time to prevent the destruction of a large building on the dock not far from the Benedict Mansion, which was used as an ice house, coal bunker, carpenter shop, and paint shop. At one end of the building was a large kerosene oil engine which was used in the unloading of a barge load of coal which was at the dock. It is thought this engine must have backfired and the flames communicated to the lower part of the building and went up through the walls into the carpenter and paint rooms. There was an abundance of smoke but little blaze when the fire was discovered. Captain John Anderson of the Oneida Launch and George McGonagall, Robert Allen Gardner, Joseph Walker, the estate carpenter, and other employees, took the fire hose to a nearby hydrant and they endeavored to reach the seat of the fire. They kept the flames down until the arrival of the chemicals, when axes were used, and the chemical was poured between the partition walls, thus putting out the fire in its worst spot. The damage was slight, and was covered by insurance. Well, that's reassuring. Colonel Benedict was not aware of the fire until all the firemen were on the place. He closely inspected the automobile chemical and stated that it was the first time he had been close to one. He complimented the firemen on their quick arrival and the good work they did. The Commodore was chiefly interested in keeping the flames from the yacht, which was near the dock, just south of the coal barge, and which formerly bore the name Oneida. In this yacht, Commodore Benedict has made many cruises, as he expressed it to a news representative. He had traveled a distance as great as from here to the moon in it. He was greatly pleased that the flames were prevented from reaching her. Well, as we count down to Memorial Day, I wanted to take you back to the year 1908 here in Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, This uh, comes from the May 29th, edition of the Greenwich News of that year, um, and it focuses on, of course, Memorial Day. Now approaches another Memorial Day, says the piece, and it would be interesting to consider the varied emotions with which people consider its coming. To the schoolboy and to the hard-worked clerk, it means simply a holiday, a day on the water, a baseball game, a day's fishing or camping, the theater, or something of that sort. To the average public man, it means perhaps a speech, an occasion when he must say something grand, eloquent, and patriotic. But to those who lived then the stirring days of 61, and of course that would be 1861, the, the American Civil War, uh, it has a deeper meaning, a personal one. Hardly a person who can remember those days of anxiety, hope, fear, can recall the days without a certain dry feeling uh, at the throat a tugging at the heart for there was hardly a person man or woman or child in those days who was not touched more or less intimate intimately by it <clears throat> try as we will we of the younger generation cannot conjure up what it means to those of the past generation to the woman it meant a son, a husband, a sweetheart, gone to feed that terrible, great, bloody, and insatiable creature, war. There was the son, perhaps a lad of 16 or 17 years, brought up with the greatest care, defended perhaps from all that was harmful or coarsening. The mother gave him, unre- relinquished all claim upon him, let him be placed in the hopper of that great, grand, but ever greedy machine which took men and turned them out battle-scarred heroes or maimed, bleeding corpses, perhaps to be brought back lumps of lifeless clay to be interred in neighboring graveyards, perhaps to to be mingled with the hundreds of thousands of others of all sorts and conditions, creeds and nationalities which with whom the chance of battle had thrown him. To those grizzled veterans whom we watch as they walk slowly and painfully along the route to the ceremony to decorate the last resting places of their comrades, it has a meaning at which we can hardly guess. To us, they look like a rather commonplace body of mild-featured, mild-mannered men, but we cannot conceive the things that they see when they make their plodding way along the line of march and look at the brand new flag with its many stars now securely set in the blue field when they hear the dear familiar strains of the star-spangled banner to them it recalls long weary weary marches when comrades dropped at the dust or mud perhaps to be thrown into an ambulance, perhaps to be crushed by hurrying artillery emissions. To them it speaks of scorching battlefields when the spirit of men was tried to the utmost. To their ears respond the boom and shatter of sharpnel, the whistling of bullets, the agonized cries of wounded comrades, the shrill cries of the enemy and the last and victorious shouts of the conquered armies as they swept up the hill or parapet and planted the banner of freedom over one more dearly won field. And also, it may mean to them of pain, or of at least partial neglect, business ruined with the lapse of years which the war took up. Perhaps it means to return after four years to find father or mother or wife or child dead, in the interval of waiting it may mean one of a hundred agonizing things to those men but did any one catch even the shade of regretful expression on one of those wrinkled faces as it looked forward to catch the gleam of the sun on old glory on ahead never all regret all rebellious feeling if there ever was any, having been swept away by the tide of something greater, stronger, holier, and more grandly joy-inspiring, something which which we of the latter generation have but faint conception. They know, those men and those women of sixty-one, that the millions of happy free men and women and children in this country today have them to thank. They drink the deep happiness of those who are conscious of having done their duty well, even at the greatest cost of having sacrificed themselves to the great, broad, deep, all-enveloping national spirit of national love. We cannot quite understand all this, but we should try to grasp it, and we should try, in some sense, to be worthy of all of it, to be ready to do our part, however small, when it comes to us to do it and to try to show those others who really have done that we know, that we appreciate. And that, my friends, is regarding Memorial Day from the year 1908 in Greenwich, Connecticut. My friends, welcome to Talk of the Town on the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. I am Jeffrey Binghammead, your host. Talk of the Town features insightful stories and conversations with Greenwich, Connecticut history makers and personalities. My friends, the Greenwich Preservation Trust is inviting you to join them on the 25th of May, 2023, um, at the Water Club on River Road in Cosgobb. That is the evening when they are going to be hosting their 2023 Preservation Leadership Award event honoring Stephen L. Bishop. He is the chairman of the Historic District Commission of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, And again, that is going to be on the 25th of May. Um, at the Greenwich Water Club, which is located at 49 River Road in Cosgob, and the hours are from 5 to 7 p.m. You can learn more and to purchase tickets at GreenwichPreservationTrust.com. I had the good fortune of having a wonderful conversation with with Stephen L. Bishop um, on uh, a previous show back in 2018, And I decided that I would replay that for you today. So without any further ado, let's listen to the conversation that uh, Stephen L. Bishop and I had in late 2018 about the Historic District Commission, what it does and doesn't do, and everything else. Now, throughout America, there are sections of towns and cities containing older buildings considered valuable for historical or architectural reasons or both. Greenwich is no exception. Our town is fortunate that citizens have organized themselves to seek legal protections from certain adverse types of development so that historic districts could remain in perpetuity. With us today on Talk of the Town is Mr. Stephen Bishop, Chairman of the Historic District Commission of the Town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Good morning and welcome to the show. And I wanted to know, would you tell us about your professional background and your connections to Greenwich history?
1: Well, as, as you know, my name is Stephen Bishop, and I'm the chairman of the Historic District Commission for the Town of Greenwich. Uh, I'm an attorney, um, although my attorney work doesn't necessarily get me into historic preservation. What really got me into that was uh, I bought a very old house uh, on Taconic Road in Greenwich, mm-hmm. Uh, house built in 1732 um, which was in very very bad condition Uh, and my wife and I restored it and uh, one thing led to another we really enjoyed it took a year and a half before we could live in it and um, then I became more interested in the local historic district which was uh, uh, established in on Taconic Road Mm -hmm. and uh, then I joined was asked to join the commission and not too much longer that after that, I was asked to be chairman. So
0: Congratulations, <laughs> at least you. I <laughs> think so. <laughs> yeah.
1: right. yeah. Very good.
0: Yeah. Now, do you have any personal connections to Greenwich history or ancestry uh, or anything? Yeah.
1: Well, yes, I, I actually do. Yeah. Um, my, my mother is a Mead, actually.
0: Oh, we're probably cousins. <laughs> yeah, oh, probably. well, all right. Yeah, everybody yeah. is, you know. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very good. All right. Well, good. Uh, then you're
0: in the right place then. Very mm-hmm. nice. All right. Now, we hear and read about the Historic District Commission in the news from time to time, especially in Greenwich. Free Press, um, and uh, so when was the commission started, and why, and what's its mission?
1: Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to have to. I, I tried to actually find out uh, when it was established, and I really have to take a good guess. I'm thinking around 1975, mm-hmm. and I know that a, that a very important early f- um, uh, founder or, or, or motivator of that whole thing. Was a guy named Paul Vanderstraat, good
0: friend of mine. Yes, yeah.
1: yep. I think that he may have been the one that pushed for the establishment of it. Yes, I yep. just presuming that. Mm-hmm. So it's been you know going strong. There's been many many commission members, many many chairmen since mm-hmm. then, and uh, it's it's continued to operate uh, ever since.
0: Yes, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what its mission is?
1: Uh, the, the the historic district commission actually has it's it sort of evolved and expanded as the mm-hmm. years go by. Sure. Um, our main our main job and, and what's really set up under state statute is to uh, establish his historic uh, districts, mm-hmm. of which there are three in Greenwich, and also historic properties, yes. um, which is the same thing except they're individual properties. They're not a district or a grouping of mm-hmm. of properties. That that was the original uh, task, and then and then sort of govern those um, after they're established, but. Since then, planning and zoning has asked us to do a number of other things, uh, one of which we we give advisory opinions mm-hmm. to historic properties, um, especially properties that are in the National Register of Historic Places, um, and uh, and also uh, we now give uh, opinions about um, historic overlay, which is uh, the newest thing uh, mm-hmm. to promote um, Reservation mm-hmm. in Greenwich. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, how often does the uh, commission meet, and um, and are the meetings open to the public? Meetings are absolutely open to the public, mm-hmm. and we meet once a month, except mm-hmm. that we try to take August off.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got a summer vacation, We get a too, summer like, vacation. Like, like, right. like most normal people. Congratulations. <laughs> right, right, right,
1: <laughs> right. right, right, now, right. You know, uh, so we will occasionally have a special meeting. Yes. If we have to, something urgent comes up or mm-hmm. gets carried over, we will have a special meeting. Sure. Okay. But it's rare.
0: Yeah. All right. Now, now um, we hear the, the term uh, historic district used qu- uh, quite often, so could you give us a definition of what is an historic district, and if you would talk us through the process uh, of a district's formation and the rules that, uh, that govern them?
1: Okay. Well, when you say historic district, you're probably meaning a local historic district, Yes. which is established under the Connecticut statutes uh, about historic districts. Mm-hmm. It's under uh, Section 17-147A okay. and all that follows that. Yeah. And... Uh, That is probably the highest level of preservation that you can get Mm -hmm. in in the state of Connecticut, federal or state. That is really the highest level Mm -hmm. of preservation you can get. Mm -hmm. Um, To to become an historic district, um, there has to be a study. Um, There's usually some uh, local historian or somebody that knows uh, historic architecture does a study. Mm -hmm. It gets submitted to the state uh, preservation office uh, for their review. They have to accept it. Mm um it has to be accepted by the board of selectmen they have to endorse it um it then um, uh, has to be voted on by the people in the district and it has so it's not imposed on them really they impose it upon themselves two-thirds of the people in the proposed district have to vote in favor of it for it to be law Uh, it then has to be approved by the rtm um, I may have that backwards. Maybe the RTM first, and then then the vote. Right. But the RTM also has to approve it. Mm. it. It's quite cumbersome. It it probably takes to do a district. Uh, it, it probably take you close to a year. Yeah, yeah,
0: I I could see that. And yeah. and again, you don't want to impose anything on the owners that they don't want. So um,
1: yeah. no, although it does only take two thirds, that someone can be pulled in. But yeah. uh, we try to avoid that. Yeah. I, I like. Uh, my personal view is that I, I want historic preservation to be positive. Yes. I want it to be something that people want and, and view it as a positive and not as a negative. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a
0: number of historic districts in in the town of Greenwich, and there's always a potential for more. And I was wondering if you could list these and describe them in, maybe in just in general terms uh, sure,
1: for sure, us. Yeah. sure, sure, sure. Yeah. We have three uh, local historic districts in Greenwich. Mm-hmm. The first is uh, is Strickland Road, Historic District. Oh, and yes. this is the one that I believe Paul Vanderstrick um spearheaded. And, of course, that's in the area around the Greenwich Historical Society. But continuing up Strickland Road. Mm-hmm. And then it was expanded to, uh, to incru- include Mill Pond, oh, yeah. which are basically post-war houses. But the people there wanted yep. to be part of it yep. because they wanted to protect that kind of feel. Mm-hmm. At least this is my understanding. I was not on the board at that time. Yeah. Um, but they didn't want to, you know, have McMansions all around their nice little capes. <laughs> yes. Um, so that's part of it. Um, the next one, there was one done for uh, Round Hill Road Historic District. Mm-hmm. This is a fairly small one. It's basically on the corner, uh, in, at the intersection of Round Hill Road and John Street. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it includes the old church there, and and uh, I guess the rectory next to yeah, the yeah, right
0: next to it. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, very nice. And it does also include the little sign mm-hmm. in the middle of the circle, which oh, yes. which has historic uh, yep. significance. Yep. And the last one is the one that I live in, and that's the Sandwich Historic District. Mm-hmm. And um, that you know runs along Taconic Road um, from about where the old church was. They don't use it much as a church anymore, the, except occasionally the Sandwich Congregational Church. Oh yeah. And runs north all the way up to the intersection with the North Sandwich Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the properties along there,
0: and a very picturesque area. Uh, it yeah, really yes. is a very familiar. Um, I, with, I
1: like to yeah. think so. Yes. I, yeah. uh... And of course, you live there. So. I live there. <laughs> so,
0: very, very good. So, <laughs> my friends, you're listening to Talk of the Town on Greenwich a Town for All Seasons. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, and I am your host. My guest today is Mr. Stephen Bishop. He is the chairman of the Greenwich Historic District Commission. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, your host. Contact me anytime at Greenwich a Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Again, that Greenwich a Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Check out the show's news blog at Greenwich a Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. Are you on Facebook? Well, I hope you are. Look up the Greenwich Town for All season show page and like us, please. Facebook groups I recommend you subscribe to include You Know You're From Greenwich, if administered by Greenwich resident Judy Goss, images of Greenwich, Connecticut administered by Jim Ramsey, and Nostalgia Greenwich. The Greenwich Historical Society relies on private support to deliver an array of programs and services in Greenwich, Connecticut. Your contributions advance its mission by funding the following areas. Education and public programs for all ages, exhibitions and collections to preserve and maintain our heritage, historic preservation to ensure that our community's significant structures are not lost, and library and archives to keep our history alive for the future. The Society preserves and interprets Greenwich history to strengthen our community's connection to our past, to each other, and our future. The Greenwich Historical Society chronicles the past, but the future is in your hands. You're invited to give and also to join the Greenwich Historical Society by calling 203-869-6899 or going on the web to greenwichhistory.org Welcome back to Talk of the Town on Greenwich A Town for All Seasons. My name is Jeffrey bingham Mead, and I am your host. With me today is Stephen Bishop. He is the chairman of the Greenwich Historic District Commission. Let's resume our conversation. We also hear the term and I see this uh, reported on um, what is called a Certificate of Appropriateness.
1: Right. Uh,
0: so uh, descri- talk to us about that. Describe it for us. Okay,
1: okay. Well, if you live in an historic uh, district or you own an historic property uh, and you want to make a change to the exterior of your house, you need to put in an application, which is very simple, uh, very, you know, five, five or six lines and then maybe some pictures or plans that show us what you want to do mm-hmm to the exterior of your house. And then you'll come before the commission and we'll make a determination. You know, we have to determine that it's appropriate yeah. before you can get a building permit to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to say, first of all, we have nothing to say about what goes on inside the house. Right. You can do anything you want inside yeah. the house. Yeah. Uh, and we try very, very hard to work with people uh, to, to make whatever change they need, addition, mm-hmm more light, whatever it is, to make it work. We want it to work. I don't want it to be a big burden. I want houses to work in the 21st century because if they don't continue to work, they won't survive.
0: That's right. There's that demolition option <laughs> that's out there, <laughs>
1: you know, which we
0: know all right. too much about. Y- here. Yes, yes, yes. I'm afraid
1: so. I'm afraid so. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. So uh, so you're not there to, to micromanage what goes on inside the Absolutely house. Not. Or, Absolutely you know, not. Absolutely Remodeling or anything no, like and, that. Well, and,
1: and we work extremely hard with yeah. people to make what they want to do work yes. for them as well as us yes. to preserve the character. but. Have a house that they can live in and, and, and function in.
0: Yeah, so it's kind of a partnership, really. A it stuff. is. Yeah, yeah. It is absolutely. Oh. All right absolutely. now. Now we also um, we hear the term historic zone, um, and uh, what role does the commission have in 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 their creation? Uh, do you can you talk about that?
1: i I'm, I'm, historic zone is sort of a. I'm not sure what you're, what that's getting at. You know, we have this new historic overlay.
0: Oh yeah, that's what I mean. Yes. Historic
1: yes. overlay, yeah. which are, has been around in down, the downtown area, yeah. in commercial properties for yeah. quite a while. Right. But um, myself, along with some other preservation people in town, the yeah. Greenwich Preservation Trust, the Greenwich Historical Society, yeah. all felt that we needed to do something to try to stop the demolitions of some extremely significant properties. Mm-hmm. And we have lost some real heartbreakers. Yes, we have. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, short of making it a a local historic district, which basically they have to agree to. Mm -hmm. Our feeling was that the only way you can do this is you give people some incentive to to maintain their their historic property. Mm -hmm. So we got the the planning and zoning passed a new regulation, um, which is, here I have the book, it's uh, under Mm 6-109 historic overlay zone. And what this does is... uh, it, a property owner, if they thought they had a historic property, would first come to the Historic District Commission and we would say, yeah, we think this is a very significant property or this architecture is great or the house is in very original condition mm-hmm. and ought to be granted some benefits. Yeah. Then they go to P&Z and if P&Z agrees, mm-hmm. uh, they can get some significant uh, benefits. They can get an increase in FAR. Mm-hmm um they can actually get an extra unit extra living unit mm. on on the property mm-hmm. um, so you know you can get some real benefits and actually we've already had several come in mm-hmm. and we have approved them and uh, those houses are now protect protected forever
0: yeah excellent know? and far refers to floor area ratio correct, correct. yes for correct. those that correct. don't correct. know what that means correct. yeah right. Right. okay right. now um another question that i had for you because i would i would say that surfing on a commission uh, such as this one is not a piece of cake. Um, it, it has its challenges and all. So I wanted to know if you would talk to us uh, Talk us through the challenges that you and the other Commission members face, you know when you're deliberating over uh, matters that, um, th- that Come before you just in general terms. You don't have to go into specifics if you don't okay
1: Well, of course, especially with this new H.O. Uh, rule we'll have to determine uh, whether a property is significant, yeah. uh, whether it's its merits getting mm-hmm. the kind of benefits that they can get. Right. Um, and uh, that's gonna be, have to be an ongoing kind of thing. Yeah. As I say, we've only seen a couple of them. Uh, but the couple that we've seen have been beautiful properties that mm-hmm. are now protected. Right. But the owner's got something significant in return. Yes. Yeah. Um, so that that, but it remains to be seen how that works out coming down the road. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of giving certificates of appropriateness, of course, there's always questions. Is this appropriate? Is that appropriate? You know, almost invariably, though, we can come to some agreement sure. with, with the owner. Yeah. Uh, hey, could you make the windows look this? Windows are so important. Oh, yes. In an historic yes. house. Yes. Uh, can, you, can you do this with the window? Can yeah. you change the configuration? Of it? And usually yeah. we can hammer these things out sure. and uh, everybody's happy. Yeah.
0: So we, so you're not going to paint your um your your house like pumpkin orange or that? <laughs>
1: I certainly am not.
0: <laughs> no, no, All right. Well, I thought I would try. All right, okay. <laughs> you know. But um, I'm sure you must get uh, interesting requests and um, and all that. Well, nice. you
1: yeah. know, they're all pretty reasonable. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, you know, people that live in an historic yes. district, yeah. they live there because they like it. Yes. And and they uh, they don't want to mess it up. And and of course, the big value in an historic district, or one of the big values. Is that you're never going to have the be living in a colonial yeah. historic district, and then you're going to have some glass box right next to you, which is yeah. just going to change the whole feel of the place. And,
0: and also, an individual property can uh, can fall under the uh, the jurisdiction
1: of. Well, uh, we, we have four of them. Yeah. Yes. In Greenwich, okay. In in those cases, though, we don't really have the vo- have to have a vote mm-hmm. because the owner themselves is saying, "I want this to be an historic property," yeah. and in every one of those cases, it's it's by someone. Who loves the property so much uh, that they just can't bear to see it uh, torn down? Uh, It doesn't mean that they can't put an addition out the back. That's right. Doesn't mean that you can't fix up the inside. Doesn't mean you can't bring it up to code, you know, do everything to make it. Uh, a modern house, but th- they just couldn't say stand to see the wrecking ball uh, yeah. take the whole thing away, <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, which
0: we've seen an awful lot of yes, you know? yes, so, yeah that's so sure. that's really that's good now sure. as we as we start to um, as we start to close, I wanted to ask you about what is the future of um, historic districts in either in general or in greenwich and 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 what about the commission, and do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with us? Sure, sure. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, I'm always hopeful that there will be more historic districts. Yes. They're not easy to, to put together. Yeah. You really have to have a neighborhood that it is fairly cohesive, and, and you need somebody that's going to push it in, yes. the, in the commission. I mean, we can do that, and we will do everything we can to help them. But uh, you need somebody on the ground, hopefully, that says, hey, you know, we got to do this, or this is going to happen, right. or we're going to have this over here. Don't you love it the way it is? Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, I'm always trying to tell people it doesn't mean that it's etched in stone, that you can never make a change. You just have to get a certificate of appropriateness. Mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful, but, uh, you know, that's a tough road. I'm hoping that we're going to see more of these historic overlay uh, applications Mm -hmm. and that um, uh, that that's going to, you know, probably be our best bet for preserving uh, some old properties. Sure. I I would close by saying that if anybody is, you know, wants to push historic preservation – uh, that, you know, Greenwich is, is get going through the POCD mm-hmm. right now.
0: POCD is? P-
1: is Plan of Conservation and Development, right. which they do every 10 years. Oh, yes. And it's sort of it's the guideline of this is where we want to go with the town. These mm-hmm. are the goals that we're looking for. Yes. And uh, they've had a, a series of meetings around town. I don't know if any more are still coming up. Mm-hmm. But if they are, they should go to them. And But if not, uh, shoot an email off to... Uh, our director of planning and zoning, uh, Katie DeLuca, mm-hmm. who's terrific, yeah. and, uh, you know, she's, she would love to see more historic preservation because yeah. I don't think anybody, any of us mm-hmm. who have lived in town all our lives as I have, yes. you know, like to see these beautiful old houses coming down and, mm-hmm. and destroying the fabric uh, of the town yeah. that we all love.
0: Yes, indeed. Now, uh, Stephen Bishop, you are the chairman of the Greenwich Historic District Commission. I want to thank you very, very much for being with us on Talk of the Town, on Greenwich Town for all seasons. It's such a pleasure to have you, and you are welcome here anytime.
1: Okay, thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
0: My friends, it is time for me to run. I want to thank you all so much for tuning in to the Tuesday, 16th of May, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Season show podcast. I'm Jeffrey Binghamita, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, a community long known as the Gateway to New England. It's been such a pleasure being with you today, and I thank you so much for tuning in and expressing your interest in the history and culture of a very, very special community, Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most notable and attractive, a special place that we call home. Now, my good friends, I have to tell you, as always, that I am very grateful to the sponsors, advertisers, and partners who make this show possible for you, and those People would be Greenwich, uh, (laughs) I'm getting ahead of myself, Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum of the United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, and listeners like you everywhere. I love to hear from my listeners, uh, and if you have questions, you have comments, I welcome them, and you can contact me anytime, 24 by going on email to greenwichatownforallseasons at gmail.com. Learn more about the show and listen to past shows. There's no paywall. And you can do that by going to greenwichatownforallseasons.blogspot.com. Well, you know what? Time flies when you're having fun. And we do a lot of that here. Uh, So I am delighted to tell you that our next show is going to be coming up on the 23rd of May, 2023. That's a week from today. I'm grateful to all of you for your interest and enthusiasm for this podcast and for celebrating the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. You know, I look forward to being with you next week. Be well and be happy (laughs) and everything that goes with it. Take good care and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye now.